Welcome to Addiction and the Family, Episode 13, A Story of Finding Freedom. How has addiction affected your family? It robbed me of my father. Addictions affected my family in absolutely every way. Um, it has caused a lot of turmoil. It goes back to what I understand is at least three generations. It robbed my daughter of her mother. It robbed my mother of her daughter. Addiction has made our family quite challenging. Addiction affected my family tremendously. Uh, it's affected my relationship with my sister where I wouldn't I'd go for months without talking to her. It's a very difficult thing for everybody involved. It doesn't just affect the, the one individual. It's a disease that affects the whole family. Addiction is spread not only genetically through like some of my uh, relatives and I assume ancestors. It's uh, generational. I think of him every day. Welcome to Addiction in the Family, a podcast by and for family members of anyone with an addiction. My name is Casey Arriaga and I'm a social worker and addiction counselor at both Windmill Wellness Ranch and In Mind Out Emotional Wellness Centers in Texas. I've led hundreds of family workshops, but I've also lived the experience of being family to addiction as both a child and adult. My wife Kira and I were in our addictions together for over a decade and now have been in recovery together for almost 20 years. Join us as we offer experience, strength, and realistic hope about how you and your family can find recovery together. Hi, Kira here. In this episode, Casey has an in-depth interview with A.S. Edwards, who is in the process of writing about her experience of finding freedom from a family pattern of addiction. As we'll hear in the interview, she grew up with a parent who was addicted to alcohol, and then, as an adult, she married someone who was addicted to various drugs. In both cases, the addiction was not openly discussed, and dishonesty became part of the family pattern, creating a situation that is all too familiar around this disease. Her interview shows how she came to be more honest with herself and thus began her journey to freedom. All this after a quick word from one of our sponsors. Addiction in the Family is brought to you in part by the generous support of Windmill Wellness Ranch, an innovative treatment center located in the beautiful hill country of Texas and serving clients and their families from throughout the United States. I'm Shannon Mollish, CEO of Windmill Wellness Ranch. We offer the best in neurotechnology to heal the brain and the best therapy to heal the mind. Call us today at 210-762-6217. Welcome back. And now let's hear that interview with author A.S. Edwards. I am here with author A.S. Edwards, and we're going to be talking a little bit today about some of your history and what has you on a show called Addiction in the Family. I'm A.S. Edwards. I am an architect, actually, in New York. I'm also a writer. And I'm here because I was married to a person with an opioid and alcohol addiction, and I wanted to come on and talk about my experience with that. Which I very much appreciate. I guess I'll ask, what is some of your personal history with addiction, and did it start with your husband? It actually didn't. So I do have a personal history with it um, because when I was 10 years old, um, my father passed away, and I actually didn't know at the time that he had struggled with alcohol addiction, and I found out a bit later when I was maybe a teenager and my mother told me, but he had passed away um, as a result of that. It was a complication while we were away on vacation. He had actually fallen and hit his head, 
so I, I, I'm familiar with addiction, and I think that because I had that experience with a father who was really um, devoted, loving, and, you know, I didn't even really see the signs. Granted, I was a kid. You know, I, I never really associated addiction with a stigma that sometimes is present because I know that it can um, be present with people that are really just wonderful people, and it's nothing, um, you know, to really shy away from, which is, I think, part of why I ended up in the relationship I did and um, really committed to the person I was with. And when you say that that's one of the reasons that you ended up in the relationship that you were in, what makes you say that? I was in the relationship from the beginning just because I was, you know, really taken with the person I was with. But I did come to learn about his addiction about four months into it. And I think that where it became complicated over time and other people that didn't have my experience might have kind of evaluated whether or not it was, you know, in their own best interest or my best interest in this case. I think that I was really feeling as though I wanted this to work out and I wanted it to mean something, especially since, you know, in my father's case, like, he ended up passing away, and I, I couldn't really do anything about it, and I wanted to be there, and I wanted to make it work, if that makes sense. Well, it makes a lot of sense, and I think that's an impulse that has come up for many a family member. Right. Sometimes there can be that thought of, I wasn't able to save this one person that I loved, but maybe I can save this other person instead. And I wonder, do exactly. you recognize any of that? Yeah. Yeah, I think that, that what you said is very very much what I felt and I'm sure that other people feel that too and that's what makes it so hard it becomes so cyclical I think in some cases it certainly does and first I just want to say I'm really sorry about your father's passing especially when you were so young I'm sure it must have been quite a shock at the time oh yes absolutely and if I can ask what were you told about it initially and how did that come to change later in your life? I initially was told that he had hit his head, and it was because of a back medication, and my mom said that the medication made him dizzy. That actually didn't end up being true. My mom did just tell me that to not have to mention the fact that there was alcohol involved and that there was an ongoing struggle. She told me maybe when I was a teenager, I think maybe 14 years old. I think she might have told me kind of in the context of, you know, family history and that sort of thing. Um, but she did tell me that the, the medication wasn't actually a thing. There, It was really just purely alcohol. And what was it like for you to hear that at the time? I was confused. I mean, when I was initially told that my father had passed, my mom said an accident first, and I assumed a car accident, because I, I think that's what most people assume. But I think that I was just really confused. And I, I was only 10, and I couldn't really fathom how it happened, how it made sense. And I think it's still hard to this day, because, you know, I remember my father really well, and he, he was always very put together. And so I don't really know if maybe things just had escalated, especially with us being gone. Um, and my mom did know that my father had struggled, and she had um, asked him through the years to go to therapy, and um, he did. But he 
did hide from her the fact that he had continued to drink during the times that she thought he didn't. So I think that that made it really especially difficult for my mom to properly intervene when she wanted to because she didn't have the full picture. Which is also, of course, very common. I wonder at 10, of course, the whole thing was very confusing. What was it like at 14 to hear that it was actually alcohol? You know, I definitely felt that it was really it was really jarring for me to know that he struggled with addiction because prior to that, I really hadn't had any direct experience with addiction at all. And I think that my only kind of idea of it was what might be portrayed in media or TV shows or anything like that, especially with the parent portrayed, you often see like someone who's yelling at their kids or kind of not functioning very well or you know you get the idea of like a mean drunk and I just didn't I, I think I didn't even believe it because I I had such a misconception based on not knowing anything and so I just thought that he can't possibly have been an alcoholic but it was a jarring lesson in the fact that addiction manifests in so many different ways and it doesn't necessarily have to present the way it's um, often portrayed especially in media Absolutely true. And so that starts to talk about family history. And if I can ask that you're aware of, was your father the only person in the family that had had struggle with addiction? I think his father did as well. I'm not sure the full extent of it, but he he passed away from actually emphysema. Other than that, I I believe it extends into um, my father's side of the family a bit. Okay, so there you are, a teenager, and then as you're moving forward in your life, did you have interactions with other people around addiction that you're aware of before your husband? Uh, Not that I'm aware of, no, I don't think so. And with your husband, if I may ask, how old were you and how old was he when you guys met? I was 25 and he was 29. We met in New York City. Uh, It was actually in June of 2018, so it was really not that long ago. Um, We had gotten married um, a year and a half in. You said about four months into the marriage or four months into the relationship, you started to notice the problems? Oh, well, it was actually four months into the relationship that I started to notice that he had some problems with different dependencies, actually. And the first time that I was really aware of it, It was actually quite sudden, and we had uh, gone on a trip over the weekend, and I had known that he was a banker, and he had, you know, Adderall prescriptions to, you know, work the late hours that a banker often does, and also his doctor also prescribed him with Xanax and different benzos like that, uh, Klonopin, I believe, too, to help him sleep after taking Adderall. So obviously not a great cycle, but not a terribly uncommon one with, you know, high-powered professionals working late into the night. And what had happened was he had this depressive episode one night before work, like after we had taken this trip, just crying and just, I had never really seen anything like it, just um, not even really forming words properly, just saying that something was wrong with him, something was wrong in his head. And I was, you know, trying to talk him through it. And eventually, like, he kind of calmed down, went to bed. And then by the next day, I had gone to work and he said he had gone to work, but he didn't. And I had gotten a call from his friend saying that he was talking about ending his life. And so 
we all kind of went over and were with him. We ended up bringing him to the hospital. And, you know, his blood alcohol content was through the roof. It was uh, 0.28. The doctors, um, you know, kept him. And he had discussed with his psychiatrist about what the issue was. And I'm not really sure if I was being told the full story here. But he told me that it was a Xanax issue, that he had been too dependent on Xanax for too long a period of time and that it resulted in, you know, his wires getting crossed and a depressive episode and he just needed to switch to something slow release and taper off of it. I thought that was actually that sounded reasonable to me. I'm no doctor, but um, as it turned out, he wasn't telling me that the alcohol was clearly an issue at the time. He would have good ways of kind of explaining that away. You know, the fact that he would get tremors and he would use alcohol to like make those side effects go away. But as it turned out, he was also using um, OxyContin in large quantities. And so there were, there were a lot of pills happening, benzos and opioids, as well as alcohol. But the, the primary addiction was um, an opioid addiction, as it turned out. And what was it like for you to see all of this unfolding? It was very scary, and I hadn't really experienced anything like it before. And so I think I was trying to sort of do the best I could with no information and no real knowledge of the situation. I would try to, you know, talk to him and and reason with him and and like sort of comfort him while trying to figure out what was going on. And I really just thought maybe he has been depressed this whole time and I didn't know. Maybe he just needs that addressed. And I was also just, I was really obviously frightened because of how destructive that episode turned out to be and could have turned out to be, especially with the types of things he had been saying. You know, I, I was at work and I had to leave. And I actually, throughout the course of our relationship, it did happen a few times that I would kind of know something was wrong or I'd be told something was wrong and I'd have to kind of dart up from work and and leave. And that was just stressful for me, too, in terms of just my own kind of grounding in my life and my work. I did have a really good supervisor um, at the firm I was working at at the time who I was able to tell her what was going on and she was really, really helpful to me. And I know that a lot of people might not have those types of work relationships and I just can't imagine how you can even be there for someone if if you don't have support yourself to you you know what I mean like it, it just trickles in so many ways and I think it was really hard for me to kind of just stay calm sometimes and stay grounded while he was going through this and I was kind of going through it as a result. Yeah, and I think what you're saying about the support is so incredibly important and something that I fear that family members don't seek enough. Where were you finding support at the time? Well, um, I spoke to my family members, my mom and my brother, as well as some of my friends were really wonderful and helpful. But I think that as time went on, it became really difficult the the things that were happening in the relationship the types of behavior he would display towards me and um, just kind of not following through with things on the most minor level and just bad behavior for example we went on a trip 
to Aruba and he had gotten into basically the mini bar while I was asleep and I woke up to him um, in really bad shape and for almost the rest of the trip he was not with it at all and like couldn't really function and he actually it even got so bad that he had drank so much that he broke a vase in the hotel and we had I we had to go to the office I kind of almost felt like I was like a mother of a teenager who was unruly or something because I had to kind of bring him down to the office and we had to pay for the vase that was broken and it was just I had confided in one of my friends about it but by that point like some of those things I knew that my mom didn't like him I knew that some of my friends didn't either and I started to as much as I did have that support system and they were all there for me by no fault of their own I sort of started to limit what I was saying just because I didn't want to you know add more fuel to the fire with the people that I was close to judging him so I think that that also became pretty isolating not allowing myself to open up as much yeah well it's been said that addiction is a disease of isolation and This applies for family members as well. And I've seen the kind of things that you're saying here play out in a lot of families where people start to pull back somewhat voluntarily. And often they'll say something similar to what you said. Well, I don't want other people to judge my loved one. Exactly. And I wonder in there, was there any fear of judgment yourself for the choices that you were making? Yes, because I knew how it sounded. I knew that it sounded sort of ridiculous at a certain point that I was staying in this relationship because there were a lot of times that I was, you know, really unhappy and really just anxious and stressed. And and also I will add that um, what was really helpful to me during that time too was um, my mom had actually helped me find a therapist that I could speak to as things were getting more difficult. And I thought that that was particularly helpful and I would certainly recommend that to people that might have a loved one with an addiction because I think it's only natural to sort of go through that experience of feeling like you're almost betraying that person by speaking to people that are, you know, that know them and you and it becomes difficult to have someone that's closer know everything so it's it's a lot easier to open up to someone who much I did um, therapist. But I think I did kind of, I judged myself a little bit sometimes and I I kind of got caught in my own head like, well, I I love this person and I I wanted to believe that he was telling me like, I I promise that this is under control, I'm doing better, this was just a fluke or a mistake or whatever it might have been at whatever period of time, like if you know, he got too drunk and out of control, or if I noticed his behavior seemed strange and I needed to ask, you know, have you been using anything? I think that I just really wanted to believe what he told me and I really wanted to push through and I didn't want to give up. But I still, at the same time, I would realize that this doesn't look good and if I don't feel comfortable telling my mom or my best friend or my brother then maybe there isn't something right here. For some people that kind of awareness goes off like a light bulb but for a lot of people it's a long slow process and it just becomes a tipping point point. and I wonder what was that like for you? Well 
I think that it was a pretty long, slow process for me, actually. And basically, the the tipping point, I, I don't really know that I had one tipping point that made me realize, but the most prominent one was basically when the relationship ended, and it was actually this April. And so I think that basically with the quarantine, um, happening. We had been living in our apartment in New York City and with the, you know, the advent of coronavirus and all of our offices shutting down, we went out to the suburbs to stay at my mom's house and he was kind of deteriorating during that time. And I think even up until that point, I was still kind of trying to be a go-between with him and my mom because my mom was seeing things that she wasn't liking. She was mostly trying to stay out of the way and she wasn't um, very vocal about it. Certainly not to him, but she was to me. She had found him asleep in front of an open refrigerator um, while he was here. Bottles of wine were missing and he'd fall asleep during the day at all hours and like at the dinner table. And I would try to ask him what was going on and try to figure out what to do. And at the same time, is trying to sort of hide anything that he was doing from my mom so that the situation wouldn't be any more strained. It just felt like it was an uncomfortable position to be in. But at the same time, it was a really slow realization for me that this wasn't good. And I think I was still trying to conceal things, even with all of us under the same roof. And it wasn't really until he had gotten to a point where he had a psychotic break and he he actually had started yelling things at my mother. He accused her of murdering my father. It was a completely psychotic rant. And he also, um, during this rant, threw me into some pieces of furniture. I got some bruises and that sort of thing. And that was really the breaking point where I, I knew that I couldn't be with him anymore and that it um, it was just too damaging. It was too damaging to me physically um, and to my mom emotionally. And, you know, she had told me afterwards how even though she knew that he wasn't in his right mind, she thought it was pretty amazing how he was able to pinpoint, like, the deepest cut to make, you know, because she always felt that, maybe if she had done something differently or or knew more that she could have saved my dad and she, you know, blamed herself. And so I think that that was such a strong moment um, for both me and my mom when I just, I knew that there was no way that it could continue and I had to kind of get out of the marriage and the relationship. After a quick break to hear from one of our sponsors, we'll hear more of Casey's interview with author A.S. Edwards. Addiction and the Family is made possible in part by you, our listeners, through the power of Patreon. If you want to help support this podcast, simply drop by our support page at patreon.com slash addictionandthefamily, or alternatively, go to patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, and search for Addiction and the Family. Any level of support helps us carry the message, and official patrons get sneak peek excerpts from my book in progress, Realistic Hope, The Family Survival Guide for Facing Alcoholism and Other Addictions. Visit our page on Patreon for details. Welcome back. Let's hear the rest of the interview. 
Your mom, of course, is looking from the outside at some version of something she herself has gone through before with your father. Oh, yeah, exactly. And the thing is, like, you know, my mom had told me that she had gone through it and that, you know, she was initially very um, supportive in the beginning of the relationship, at least, because she did think, well, you know, your father maybe needed to go to rehab. And, and my husband did go to rehab at one point, and I thought that that would really help things along. And, you know, my father never did. He did go to therapy, but he did need more treatment than what he had. But my mom said, you know, maybe like if your father had gone to rehab, he would still be here. And I think that she supported it and she believed that my husband could get better. But at the end of the day, like my father, he functioned a lot better than my husband did. And, you know, their relationship wasn't in any real turmoil and it wasn't the same level of upheaval that I think I experienced. So she could very easily see where this wasn't really going anywhere good. And I think that that's just because, you know, my husband wasn't really committed to recovering. And it was so clear that things weren't going well. But he would say they were, make something up. Or, you know, he, while he was here, I had kind of asked him if, if he was all right and what we could do to make him feel better, like in, while he was um, falling asleep during strange hours and drinking to excess. And he told me that everything was under control and the reason he was acting that way was because his doctor had taken him off of his synthetic opioids. It's Suboxone used for opioid addiction management, the medication-based treatment. And he had told me that uh, his doctor took him off all of those synthetic opioids and that as a result, he was experiencing withdrawals, that this would be better for him in the long term. And it turned out that that wasn't actually true. And he was using both his synthetic opioids and buying street drugs as well um, during that time. He admitted to that afterward. And it should have been clear to me that things weren't going well, but I chalked it up to not knowing enough and not knowing how it was supposed to present itself, how recovery was supposed to look. And I know it's not always pretty, but I think it's not usually like that. No, I think that's pretty accurate. It's not usually like that. Right. And so things hit the breaking point. You realized, okay, I can't continue in this relationship. What have you done from that point forward? Well, you know, at the beginning, it was uh, very jarring immediately afterwards. I think that I sort of struggled to kind of wrap my head around it for a few days. But actually, by maybe three days later, I began to write. And it was very cathartic for me because I was trying during that time to sort of make sense of everything that had happened and the reality that I had lived in with my husband and just how it had all sort of kind of fallen apart all at once. So I started writing and I started writing about the experience from beginning to end and I ended up writing a book. And so I'm really happy that I did that because I think that it was not only helpful for me to gain perspective and understand what the experience was that I went through and 
you know, kind of like see the full picture in a way that I didn't while I was so immersed in it. I also think that it could potentially help other people that are going through it or have gone through it to be able to read about my experience in that sort of format. So I think that that was probably the most helpful thing I did immediately afterwards. And after I got that, you know, first draft done, I was able to sort of refocus on other things in my life, like finishing my architecture licensure exams and just kind of move forward. And so I think that that was really, really helpful for me to kind of understand and get some closure for myself. What are some things that you saw or learned about your journey as you were writing? I learned that when I was kind of putting myself into various moments throughout the journey that was our relationship, I knew that things were bad a lot of times. And I just kind of told myself to keep hanging on. And I I think that I sort of blocked out previous experiences as I was living in each sequential one, if that makes sense. Because I I actually realized this as I was writing about one moment that I fully forgot that something bad had happened like a week before it. And I sort of had to recalibrate. And I was like, I actually think I lived that way. I think that I sort of sugarcoated um, certain aspects of our relationship just so that I could continue and move forward. And I sort of blocked out some of the bad memories, at least some, like they weren't, weren't fully out of my mind. I remember now. And it's just things like that. I kind of looked backwards with rose-colored glasses and I did it just so that I could stay and not give up on him. I was struck when you said the way things fell apart so suddenly, but you've been describing something sort of building or, if you want to say, maybe crumbling slowly almost from the beginning. Right. I think that I might still have something in my head that's hardwired to uh, do that. It's so funny you noticed that. Uh, It was. Things were uh, definitely crumbling, but... I I think that um, part of that also might be just the magnitude of what had happened in that moment. I I, I hadn't experienced anything quite like that, even though things were crumbling. But you're right. Um, I think that I tended to, uh, and and even now maybe, I, I think I sort of tried so hard to see the good parts of everything that I didn't really have a clear picture of how things actually were. Yeah, and I like what you just said there about trying so hard to see the good parts. And I think sometimes we have the idea that if we acknowledge the bad parts, if you will, if we acknowledge the things that are so uncomfortable, that that will somehow negate the good parts. And I wonder if it'd be possible to see it all as one picture, that all of those things can be true at the same time. Yes, I think that that's a really good point. And I think that figuring out can absolutely be good parts and, you know, wonderful things that are occurring while a lot of troubling things are happening, too. And 
I guess it's um, if one outweighs the other and if the troubling things are acceptable things. You know, the, the way things were going, I think that, you know, they weren't being fixed and they were only escalating. But I think that my own idea of how things were was kind of skewed. And I, I, I was, I was trying very hard to just sort of push through. I think that I had made up my mind to do so um, because I, I loved him and I believed in him. And he had a lot of like really wonderful qualities, but the fact that he wasn't ready to accept what he needed to do to recover. It made it so that, for me at least, I I just couldn't stay in that relationship and have it be healthy for me because I I couldn't do it for him. And he had to be ready himself before I could, you know, be happy in that relationship. And you certainly don't have to give any specific detail on this, but... Do you know where he is now and how he's been doing since then? A little bit. He uh, went home to his parents, and he was there for about a month before he finally went to rehab again. And we haven't been in a lot of communication as of late, but I'm not really sure how it's going. I think that it seems as though it's could have been helpful, but I'm I'm not quite sure that a lot has changed. Um, And I hope it does, but I can't be the one to, uh, you know, be be there for that anymore, which is really sad. But I just know that for me, um, it to continue to really be involved because, you know, of all the history we have. And I think it's just too painful. But um, I, I hope that this experience did prove to be a wake-up call, but I'm, I, I'm not quite sure if it was. And how about your own recovery from your experiences since that time? What's that been like? It's been kind of slow, but I think that the writing was really the most helpful thing for me. And I continued to speak to my therapist, who's wonderful, and um Stepping away from the relationship, that is, while also getting a better understanding of what it is I went through through writing. I think that that was very helpful to me. And I think that the the hardest part actually was making the decision that he and I couldn't really communicate so much anymore because I think that I was still so invested and I had done a Zoom call with him and his psychiatrist to help him pick out a rehab facility afterwards. And I was really involved. But even then, he had told me something about how his parents weren't going to help him with the cost of rehab. And his parents do have some money. And so I was surprised by that. And he said all sorts of things about that and how he wasn't going to be able to afford it. And I was really confused and I was upset about it and I was thinking well why like they they do have a lot of money and so I was thinking why are they not helping him with this and as it turned out I I ended up just asking his mother if that was the case and it wasn't the case at all he told me that and it it wasn't true and and she was stunned she said that we we've been trying to get him to go somewhere and he he said that we weren't going to pay for it it was just that I don't think that his mind was all there still. And I think that it was just 
so damaging to me at that point too. Like I just, I would get upset by some of the things that he was saying and I would, you know, try to make sense of them, but then kind of have to realize that there wasn't really much sense to be made. I think that that was really the hardest part of my my recovery was having to make that decision to not really communicate anymore because I, I wanted to be there, but it, it was just so complicated. I'm really glad that you're continuing to get support for yourself. And I wonder, if you don't mind my asking, have you explored any of the family recovery fellowships? You know, I have thought about it, and I, I haven't now, um, but I think it might be a good idea. There's something that we find really, really helpful for families. So as a professional who works in the field, it's something I talk about a lot. So, yeah, I'd encourage you to maybe look into, you know, any any of them can be helpful, whether it's Smart Recovery Family and Friends or Al-Anon or Families Anonymous. Right, or, yeah. Or Adult Children of Alcoholics, which you also qualify for. Yeah, I had thought about it while I was in the relationship, certainly, and I didn't end up doing it, I guess, just because there was a lot going on, and I was I was doing therapy, but I think that that would have been particularly helpful. But I guess even now, even though I'm not really in the situation anymore, do you, do you find that people often join or stay in if they, for example, are, you know, with a partner who had an addiction and the relationship ended? Very much so, yeah. In fact, a couple of my favorite people in one of the recovery fellowships are people who actually went through a lifetime of recovery with their spouse. So they got in their own recovery from addiction while their spouse was getting in their recovery from whether it's chemical addiction or whatever addiction it is. And then their spouse passed away of natural causes, 20, 30 years sober. And initially I would ask myself, well, why do they keep going? But what they would say is they get so much benefit from the fellowship, and especially considering, as you said, these family patterns reverberate. I've, in my professional life uh, and my personal life, run into people who will say, well, I married three alcoholics in a row. And at first I would think, wow, that's quite a coincidence. Right. But of course it's not. You know, Unless we resolve some of these issues that we carry within ourselves from our childhood and adult experiences, Often what our mind seems to do is want to resolve them by trying one more time and will recreate family patterns, situations over and over again without realizing it until maybe we learn or heal or, or grow in the way that, that we do so we don't have to repeat that again. So there would certainly be that benefit, but also having grown up with some of the things, although from what you've said, it wasn't such a bad version as things go. I wonder you know, how your mom feels about that. But for you as a child, it was not that bad. Nonetheless, it seems certainly to have had a pretty big impact on your life. So I would say that there definitely is benefit for going, even if you're not in a relationship right now with somebody who's struggling with those issues. Well, yeah, that certainly seems like it would apply to me, definitely. And that's a great suggestion. I'll definitely look into that. Thank you for telling me about that. You bet. Well, before we close up, I'm going to ask if you were going to, whether it was writing a note or a letter, or if you had the opportunity to go back and talk to your 10-year-old self after your dad passed away, what would you want to tell her? Huh. I had really kind of forced myself to bottle it up a little bit when I was a kid. 
I think that I allowed myself to be upset for a certain period of time, uh, maybe up until the funeral and a little after. I, I do remember I would, you know, get pretty sad at certain points sort of early on. But I remember that kind of as time went by, I would try to kind of shove down those emotions. And I don't think that that was good for me. And I think that it was partially just because, I mean, I was a kid, but, you know, I, I have this really prominent memory. I was just starting fifth grade, and it was a school I had been to since I was three. It was an all-girls school. I, I knew everybody. It was a small school. And a lot of my classmates had, you know, been to the funeral and stuff. He had uh, died at the end of August. So school started not not much later, actually. And I remember that the teacher had us all stand in a circle, and it was a Catholic school, and they said, um, pray for my dad. And I remember that I could just feel everyone's eyes were on me, and I didn't want to cry. And I think I am now, but I think that I would have told myself not to be afraid to kind of let it out sometimes because I think that as a result, I bottled it up a lot longer than I might have otherwise. So yeah, that's I think that's what I would tell myself. I tell myself to let myself feel what I was going through. And if I can ask, and you did reference it, and I feel like I can hear some of it just over the phone. Sure, yeah. What kind of emotions are coming up for you when you're looking back at that now? I guess it's hard to explain, but I feel as though I'm living it again almost. And um, I, I guess that it's, uh, you know, it's still, it's still really hard. And, I, and I, I wish I had let myself be more sad then. And I think that I don't know. I, I I just I know that for so many years I could I could talk about it without ever choking up, and I kind of dissociated from what had happened and from what I had gone through, and I think that I kind of shoved it all down into a place where it still stayed inside of me, but it was just you know almost like it was it was like a time bomb almost like it it, it wasn't going to stay down forever, the pain of it. And I think that now I, I can feel it more and I can feel the pain of it still. And it's really, it is really hard to, to lose a parent as a kid. And I was, I was close with my dad. So it's just sort of like a time bomb, if that makes sense. And I feel like I'm living it sometimes if I talk about it. Well, it almost sounds like in a way, what happened with your husband maybe has helped you get in touch with what happened to you as a child. And in an odd sort of way, maybe a gift in that way. I think you might be right about that. And I, I like to think of it that way. I think that it is healthy to get in touch, especially since I hadn't. I think maybe maybe in a way that that needed to happen in some form or another. So I, I think you may be right. And I wonder, I'm going to ask a different time period. If you could go back and talk to yourself at the beginning of your relationship with your husband, what would you say to that young woman? I think that in some way it was important for me, like you said, to have maybe gone through that, to 
understand what I'd experienced as a child, but I don't think that in the end, the prolonged nature of kind of everything that occurred was very helpful to me, of course. I think I would tell myself to talk to people close to me and that if there comes a time when I feel that I can't anymore and I can't tell them what's truly going on, that that's the time to really reevaluate and step back and to not be afraid of giving up and don't think that if I needed to leave the relationship for my own good and for my own health, that I shouldn't think of myself as, you know, a bad person or a person who gives up and I shouldn't assume that making this work would resolve my experience as a kid. And I don't know if I would have listened to myself telling myself that um, because, you know, just I think the nature of this, I think that I I was really determined and I, and I, I don't know who I would have listened to, but I think that I would urge myself at the very least to not judge myself for doing what's best for me and to make sure that I felt comfortable confiding in people because that's a really good indicator of when something's wrong and when you're actually, you know, doing yourself an even greater disservice by isolating yourself. Thank you very much. I'm going to bounce off one more thing because you said, I don't know who I would have listened to. And this is one of the one of the things that's so powerful about recovery fellowships is sometimes the the one person we might listen to is someone else who's been through it. Right. Yeah. And so I wonder, before we close up, is there anything that you would want to say to somebody who might be out there listening to this podcast, who might be in the middle of it right now? What would you want to say to them? Well, I would want to say to them that if their partner isn't ready to recover, if they're not getting better and they're not uh, telling the truth and, and you might be trying your hardest to make things work, you can't do it by yourself. You can't be the one to, to change someone else's behavior if they're not ready to change it themselves. I think that's the most important thing and not to think that that's a failing on your part. It's just that you can't control someone else. And if they are ready to recover and they're working towards it, then that's great. And, you know, maybe that's good. But if they're not and if they're, you know, relapsing and lying and that sort of thing, then it's not something that you can control. It's something that they have to take control of. Beautifully said. Well, I hope when you release your book that it's able to reach a lot of people who can benefit from that message. Do you have a title that you're working with yet? The working title is 300 milligrams, and it's because after my husband had left this house and gone back to his parents, his mother had asked me if I knew that he was buying 300 milligrams of OxyContin off the street every day. He had apparently admitted that to his mom, and so that's the working title. It's because that I think it's indicative of the magnitude of what was going on under the surface. And if people are interested in your book or want to learn how to get it when the time comes, uh, how would they reach out to you? 
So I have a website right now. It's um, asedwardsauthor.com, and I'm also on social media, Twitter and Instagram, the same handle, asedwardsauthor. And I'll definitely be posting updates where the book is concerned. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk today. It was really great to talk with you, get to know you a little bit, and thank you so much for sharing your story. Thank you so much for having me. It's really great to be here. And that concludes Casey's interview with author A.S. Edwards, who is working on her memoir of finding freedom from a family pattern of denial around addiction. Thanks for being with us through another episode of Addiction and the Family. As they say in many recovery meetings, take what you liked and leave the rest. Go out and explore the possibilities for recovery in your life and give your loved ones the space and dignity to make their own choices. If you liked this podcast, please subscribe. It means a lot to us. If you know anyone else who could use what we have to offer, please tell them about Addiction to the Family. If you have comments about this podcast, have a question you'd like to answer it on the show, or want to contribute your voice, or just want to say hi, you can write to us at addictionofthefamily at gmail.com. We're also happy to be your friend on Facebook, and we can be found tweeting on Twitter. Addiction in the Family is produced, written, and engineered by Kira and Casey Ariaga, with music by Casey.